It's the penultimate day before the end of the election season, and today's edition of Charlottesville Community Engagement is another installment intended to help anyone who reads or listens know a little more about the decisions before elected officials and the legal framework within which we all live. This is edition 456 of the program, not counting all of those week ahead summaries, and the goal is to prepare to get to 789 and beyond. On today's program, an Orange County man has been arrested and charged in the hit and run of a cyclist on East High Street in mid-October. Another lawsuit is filed against the city of Charlottesville for a land use decision, this time for a special use permit on Jefferson Park Avenue. And the two candidates in the 5th Congressional District answer more questions from the Chambers of Commerce in Charlottesville, Danville, and Lynchburg. This time around, the focus is higher education funding and the role of government in broadband. In today's first subscriber-supported public service announcement, Camp Albemarle has for 60 years been a wholesome, rural, rustic, and restful site for youth activities, church groups, civic events, and occasional private programs. Located on 14 acres on the banks of the Mormons River near Free Union, Camp Albemarle continues as a legacy of being a civilian conservation corps project that seeks to promote the importance of rural activities. Camp Albemarle seeks support for a plan to winterize the Hamner Lodge, a structure built in 1941 by the CCC and used by every 4th and 5th grade student in Charlottesville and Albemarle for the study of ecology for over 20 years. If this campaign is successful, Camp Albemarle could operate year-round. Consider your support by visiting CampAlbemarleVA.org slash donate. An Orange County man has been arrested in connection with the hit and run of a cyclist on East High Street on October 18th. The Charlottesville Police Department announced this afternoon that John Dean Sherwin, a 31-year-old, has been charged with felony hit-and-run in the incident that took place at 2.52 p.m. in the afternoon. The incident was caught on camera, and many called upon the police to investigate. At the time, a police spokesman said that neither the victim nor the assailant had come forward. Eventually, the person who was hit did come forward. Kenyon Barnes spoke with Courtney Stewart on WINA's Charlottesville Right Now on October 25th. Charlottesville police obtained an arrest warrant for Sherwin on Friday. The video shows a motorist deliberately pulling a car to the right to hit a person on a bicycle. There are no bike lanes on East High Street, and some in the area have called for attention to that issue, especially at a time when a developer is seeking to build 245 apartment units along the Rivanna River onto East High Street. Over a dozen Charlottesville residents have filed suit against the City of Charlottesville and Charlottesville City Council against the September 19th approval of a special use permit for a multi-family structure at 2005 Jefferson Park Avenue. Here's paragraph 27 of the complaint for declaratory judgment. 
City Council's authorization of the special use permits permits the construction of a building that will diminish the quality of life of all of the Observatory Avenue and Washington Avenue plaintiffs in ways not shared by the general public and compromises their health, safety, and general welfare in a variety of ways. The permit allows an increase in density under existing zoning for a total of 119 units, as well as an increase in building height from 45 feet to 75 feet. Council made their approval after developer Aspen Heights agreed to increase the amount of funding they would contribute to the city's affordable housing fund from $500,000 to $1 million. The 14 plaintiffs are acting as their own counsel and argue that the city failed to comply with Virginia Code for zoning ordinances as well as city and state rules on special use permits. All of the plaintiffs live on either Observatory Avenue, Washington Avenue, or other nearby streets in the Jefferson Park Avenue neighborhood. Here's a section from paragraph 21 of the complaint. Authorization of these special use permits short-circuits the rezoning process. It undermines the ongoing deliberative community collaborative rezoning process to which the city is committed. That refers to the city's ongoing Seville Plans Together process, which has seen the adoption of an affordable housing plan as well as a new comprehensive plan with a revised future land use map intended to inform a future zoning ordinance which is not yet complete. Here's more from paragraph 21. The applicant justifies their request for increased height and density with reference to the future land use map, as though the future land use map were already accomplished fact. Paragraph 22 points out that the staff report for the April 12, 2022 Planning Commission public hearing stated that the scale and density of the development is not harmonious with the existing patterns within the neighborhood, in conjunction with the city's entrance corridor review guidelines. However, paragraph 23 indicates the Planning Commission's public hearing was delayed to May 10th, and the staff report was altered, despite an identical application. The paragraph quotes that report. No adverse impact on entrance corridor. The impacts of increased height can be adequately mitigated by application of the design guidelines and addressed during the required Entrance Review Board design review. The paragraph states that no explanation was ever given for that change. The Planning Commission voted 4-3 to three to recommend the approval on May 10th, and Council voted 4-0 to zero to approve the permit on September 19th. The complaint for declaratory judgment was filed on October 19th, just in time to file an appeal in court. There are 11 counts in all, and you can read them in a link to the complaint in the newsletter. The first count states that Council failed to consider the health, safety, and welfare of the existing residents. Four of the plaintiffs on Observatory Avenue are over the age of 65 and are concerned that sudden health problems will require ambulance transport to the hospital. Both the bustle of construction and increased traffic when the construction is finished will compromise ambulance access. Additionally, two of the plaintiffs on Observatory Avenue suffer from asthma and would be harmed by the dust and fumes of demolition and construction, which are projected to take 18 to 24 months, as stated by the architect at the December 7, 2021 community meeting. You can read the rest of the complaint to learn more from those counts. A city spokesman confirmed that the city has been served with this lawsuit, but has not yet responded. Council and the city are already facing a lawsuit related to the adoption of the comprehensive plan, filed by a group of plaintiffs who filed anonymously.
Charlottesville Circuit Court Judge Claude Worrell threw out three of the four counts in late August, but did agree to hear further arguments about whether the city gave sufficient notice for the November 15, 2021 vote to approve the plan, and whether the term updated density was adequately explained. There's another open land use case that remains active. Cabell Marshall of Stribling Avenue sued city council in May over the rezoning of 240 Stribling Avenue this past April. I reported about that at the time. The city responded with a motion asking seven items to be added to the record for the case, as well as a demurrer seeking dismissal of the case. Here's an introduction to the demurrer. The rezoning decision is a legislative action of the city council that is presumed valid, and a court may not alter or invalidate the legislative action absent clear proof that the action is unreasonable, arbitrary, and bears no reasonable relation to the public health, safety, morals, or general welfare. The complaint does not state a cause of action against the city and fails to state facts upon which the relief granted can be granted. Stay tuned for all land use issues in Charlottesville here on Charlottesville Community Engagement. You are listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement, and in today's second subscriber-supported shout-out, the Albemarle Charlottesville Historical Society continues its speaker series on November 10th by welcoming Dr. John Edwin Mason for a discussion of the Visions of Progress Photography Exhibition, which is on display at UVA's Small Special Collections Library. Mason teaches African history and the history of photography at the University of Virginia. The exhibition showcases portraits that African-Americans in Central Virginia commissioned from Charlottesville's Holsinger Studio during the first decades of the 20th century. This is a hybrid program, meaning you can either attend in person at Northside Library or remotely via Facebook Live. Learn more at jmrl.org. All across the United States in just over 24 hours from now, registrars will begin counting up the ballots cast on Tuesday and in early voting. In Virginia, over 930,000 people have already cast ballots, according to the Virginia Public Access Project. That includes over 88,000 in the 5th Congressional District. That leaves a lot of people who may not yet have decided how to vote. I conclude today's newsletter with the final in a series of segments from candidate interviews conducted by the Chambers of Commerce in Charlottesville, Danville, and Lynchburg, with the two people vying for the 5th District seat in Congress. There are links to the previous segments in a link in the newsletter. The final installment begins with a question from Rebecca Ivins, the chair of the Public Policy Committee of the Charlottesville Regional Chamber of Commerce. From Charlottesville to Lynchburg to Danville and even over to Farmville, private and public. So the 5th Congressional District is home to the largest concentrations of institution of higher education in Virginia. We all know that. This summer, we saw a $400 increase in the discretionary portion of a Pell Grant, which was successfully included in the omnibus funding bill last month. With the increase, the maximum Pell Grant would be $6,895 for the coming academic year. The Biden administration has plans to double the maximum Pell Grant by 2029. 
Where do you stand on this proposed increase in federal resources for our neediest students and families to help them attend public and private colleges in the 5th Congressional District? Yeah, thank you. Um, uh, I, I would support that for sure. I want to make sure that we are increasing the opportunity for students to go. Again, I, I would return to we have very high uh, institution costs. We know that. And I think there is work for us to do on addressing that. One of the proposals that I have put forward is free community college, because I do want to make sure that students have access to a good education and and, and, and practical education that can move them into to well-paying jobs. So so, um, I, again, I think there are a number of solutions, a number of um, kind of proposals that we can have here to really increase opportunity and increase access to higher education, learning the skills and getting into good paying jobs. But, yes, I would I would absolutely support that. I want to I want to make sure any any person who's willing to work hard and go out there and get an education and, and put in the work can then, you know, see the benefits of that. So I would be I would be very supportive. And here's this response from Congressman Good. Well, we want to reform the Pell Grant system on the Republican side of the Ed Labor Committee. I don't favor doubling that for a number of reasons. Number one, the cost of four-year colleges at traditional colleges is astronomically going up faster than inflation and anything else, especially the non-academic investment in the colleges. Uh, the, the positions that are multiplying that have nothing to do with academics or classroom but other administrative functions, lots of diversity, equity, and inclusion positions that are being added. And we're subsidizing the massive increase on the taxpayer of, of college. And you could argue that while this, it's the local government's responsibility for K-12 education, is it the government's responsibility to educate people into college degrees, graduate degrees? You even have some Democrats now talk about K-20 instead of K to 12, which isn't even K to 16. It's a, oh, we're, we're supposed to subsidize graduate degrees now for people. I had to work my way through school. I grew up in a lower income family. I grew up on food stamps. I grew up on free lunch when, when most folks in school didn't have that, of course. Now everybody has that because we don't even want to feel stigmatized because of it. Uh, and you hear people say something like, we were poor and we didn't know it. I knew it. My brothers and I knew it. We had to work all of our lives. I was the beneficiary of a Pell Grant. I was I was the beneficiary of a student loan. And I'm thankful that helped me to work my way through school. I kind of worked and wrestled my way at a partial wrestling scholarship. But uh, I think we ought to be making these colleges uh, in return for federal assistance to use these massive billion dollar plus endowments to reduce the, if they're going to take federal dollars, then they ought to have to use these massive endowments to reduce the cost of their tuition. These colleges are getting wealthier and wealthier and the salaries are going up exorbitantly. And now we want to double the amount of Pell Grants to them, which will make them just raise their prices because they're getting more money from the federal government. Same thing will happen with a student loan transfer scheme. It's not canceling the debt. It's not forgiving the debt. As we know, we're making taxpayers who didn't go to college, those who maybe went to a trade school, those who are working a blue collar job, those who didn't go to college, those who worked their way through college or those who were, I guess, uh, chumps and paid off their student loan for some reason, making them pay for the uh, for the student loans for people, families making up to $250,000, individuals making up to one twenty five. What's the average income in this country? And we're going to allow those making up to one hundred twenty five to have their student loan debt transferred to people who didn't borrow it. It's unbelievable what we're doing. So I don't until we deal with the rising cost of higher ed generally, uh, until we begin to put some things in place from a federal government influence standpoint to do that, 
I don't believe in further subsidizing the rising rapid costs because I think they're just going to raise the prices in return for the additional dollar. Oh, well, students can afford more. Let's, let's just spend more. Let's turn next to economic development and this question from Ann Moore Sparks of the Danville, Pennsylvania Chamber of Commerce. Congressman, how should Congress address the digital divide in regard to broadband access and affordability? Great question. And I, I, again, one of those rare things, I think I said this relative to skilled labor, but even so, more so with broadband, I think there's a growing bipartisan recognition of the need to try to help in that respect at all levels of government. There may not have be, you know, obviously exact agreement on how to do that. But I advocated this as a county supervisor, for example, uh, I was in uh, county government from 2015 to 19 before I ran for Congress. And while I was a spending hawk and I was tough on limited government and low taxes and Campbell County had among the lowest real estate tax rates in the county that I live in outside Lynchburg there. Um, and I was proud of that. But I did believe that we needed to invest on the county level to try to bridge the profit gap between private providers and, uh, you know, when the economies of scale didn't work, because if if the economies of scale worked and the profit incentive was sufficient, everybody would have broadband access and Internet access across the country. Everybody would be connected to your point. But in some cases, of course, there's just not enough people to make it work financially for a company that even though the Biden administration doesn't seem to understand this, but a company that has to try to earn a profit to stay in business. And that's the requirement you know, to, to follow the interests of their shareholders. So I supported investment in that on the county level in Campbell County. I voted for that, uh, and we did that, and we're making progress in Campbell County. And and it's it's I, I liken it to being similar to like a post office uh, that uh, connectivity now because as you know, if we just said okay, we're going to go just privatization of mail service, then the FedExes and the UPSs would never deliver to the most remote parts of the country for fifty something cents like the post office does. They would have to charge exorbitant prices to do that, or they just wouldn't service areas that didn't make sense for them financially to service. And we all know connectivity, Internet access, broadband is like electricity today. We saw that as more during the pandemic shutdowns and lockdowns forced on by the government, school closures forced on by the government. And uh, and, and as more people are working from home, uh, as we know, are working remotely. So I think there's a federal role to play. I think it's prime. It's, it's a local uh, uh state and federal role to play. I'm glad that President Trump invested in that. President Biden has continued to invest in that. Unfortunately, though, when the federal government has done it recently, we passed the $1.2 trillion phony infrastructure bill a year ago. Only about 10% of it was true infrastructure, roads, bridges, airports, things like that. And a lot of it had nothing to do with true infrastructure. You had this administration said, we're going to fix racist infrastructure whatever that is. That was Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary, who has no experience in transportation, by the way. And then you also had a lot of green raw deal stuff in there, climate, environmental extremism stuff that has nothing to do with infrastructure. The fact is 90% of infrastructure in this country is done by private entities anyway. It's not even primarily done by the federal government. And we don't have an infrastructure crisis in the country. But in the problem to your question, though, is we don't get broadband by itself. We get it massive you know, for a few billion dollars for broadband. That would make a difference. We get it folded into a trillion dollar spending bill to try to force you to vote for the thing you like, like broadband. So you don't get criticized for that or you have to choke down the trillion dollars that you don't agree with in order to get a few billion dollars that you do agree with. That's unfortunately how Washington works, not how Washington should work. And the response from Throneberg. But let's hear the question again first. 
how should Congress address the digital divide in regard to broadband access and affordability? Yeah, thanks, Anne. Um, so, you know, my perspective is I think we should uh, instate broadband as a public utility and treat it as such. Um, as you all may know, one of the interesting realities that has emerged over the last few years is Nelson County um, worked really, really hard as one of the more rural counties to bring broadband into every home. And they have really brought it into, into almost every single home in the county. At the same time, uh, Nelson County was just ranked as the highest work from home county in all of Virginia. And there's, I think, an obvious connection between uh, the the fact that broadband exists in those homes and the fact that people can work from their home. Uh, that has um, just brought tremendous opportunity to that county. I think that's what we need to, to push all over the district to make sure that uh, anyone who wants to, who, who is in a home can have access to broadband. Um, and, and, and that presents, you know, opportunity for work from home, but it also presents business opportunities uh, across the district. You know, folks aren't going to always go into spaces if they don't have reliable internet. And so, um, yeah, that's that's been a big priority for me. It's, it's actually one of the things that I hear on the campaign trail the most from folks, uh, especially as you go out into some of the rural parts. But, um, you know, I think we want to really build up the um, the economic opportunity that comes with broadband. And it goes beyond just the economic opportunity. We know that for people who are trying to access healthcare, telehealth options are a wonderful option, both uh, including mental health. Um, but if you don't have broadband, you can't do that. We watched during the pandemic what happened to students who didn't have access to broadband, you know, sitting in the parking lot at McDonald's trying to uh, access their school assignments and do their homework. And it's just a it's a deeply inequitable reality in our current world if somebody has lots of access to broadband and someone has none. It just it provides such a, a deep inequity across our system. And so for that reason, uh, it's it's an absolute priority for me to to see homes and businesses across this district, everyone getting that access. And I think once that happens, then the economic opportunity that uh, kind of proceeds from that reality is is incredible for us. So I would treat it as a utility. I would want to see the Congress, you know, pushing to get that done um, on our side. That's, you know, we have we have the purse strings. And so we have the economic ability to to make those investments and to see that happen. And, and that's what I would be advocating for. Uh, pretty passionately. I think that this is not just an economic opportunity. It's a justice issue. To see the closing statements and see the other answers, please do go visit the rest on the Charlottesville Regional Chamber of Commerce's website. There are links to both videos in the newsletter. But you are done with this edition of the newsletter. And goodness, it's, it's another, another full week. week. There was to be another segment on Albemarle County's legislative agenda in today's edition, but it got the bump until tomorrow. I also got the bump from WINA's Charlottesville Right Now with Courtney Stewart today at 5, but I'll be on tomorrow at 4 p.m. Tune in. I've been doing that show on Mondays for nearly a year now, and it will be nice to meet with Courtney on a Tuesday for a change. All of this work is paid for by many of you readers and listeners via Substack, in addition to the various individuals and entities who pay me through Patreon. 
More details on that and Substack later, as and you don't, don't need to hear, hear about that every, every single time. time. But I do want to know I appreciate the one in four who do pay to keep my attention focused on a wide variety of things. You support my beat reporting, which allows me to see patterns and incongruities. Ting does match Substack subscriptions though, and I have to mention that, because if you don't sign up for a paid subscription to the newsletter, Ting still wants your business. And if you sign up through a link in the newsletter, you will get free installation, a $75 gift card to the downtown mall, and a second month for free. Just enter the promo code COMMUNITY. But for now, it's time to prepare for election day. There will be another installment out tomorrow. Until then, please drop me a line if you have any questions. I'm Sean Tubbs, and after the chime ends, we're going to hear a small blooper because, you know, that's got to be a little treat for you guys to listen to the podcast. I mean, come on. Some of this stuff is fun, right? Right? Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. as I reported at the time. Let's wait for the thing to go round. I live in a city. I live in a city. I live in a city. Is it gone? This is, it's 82 degrees and so I have my windows open.